calling all carriers. Schneider's new Freight Power app makes it easy to find and book reliable loads instantly. So you spend less time hunting for freight and more time hauling it. Download the Schneider Freight Power app today. Available now at the App Store and Google Play. Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carvel and I'm Al Hunt. We're proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University in Washington, D.C. We have quite a show this week, but first, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every new listener helps, so thank you for being here. We do have a really interesting and I think important program today looking at the white working class voters, a central component of Franklin Roosevelt's coalition and John F. Kennedy's 1960 victory, and then a core of Ronald Reagan's support in the 80s and Donald Trump four years ago. Our two guests have thought, researched, and written a great deal about this. David Paul Kuhn, author of a riveting new book, The Hard Hat Riot, about the 1970s seismic and violent confrontation between thousands of New York City construction workers and young college uh, anti-war protesters. It was a critical moment in the move away, he argues, and I think he's right, from the Democratic Party, from their parents. Uh, And Stanley Greenberg, one of America's premier pollsters and social scientists who first studied the so-called Reagan Democrats in Macomb County, Michigan, the huge middle and working class Detroit suburb. He has revisited Macomb, and he has special insights on how this election is going to be different from four years ago. James and I hope to be walk-ons today, basically, you guys. We want you two to dominate this, engage frequently with each other, comparing observations and questions. So let me just kick off uh, with David. The, the, the hard hat riot, which you researched and described in just extraordinary and often painful detail, was the catalyst for working class voters in New York uh, and elsewhere starting to focus more on cultural and traditional values rather than the economic issues that it it dominated for so long? That's right. Uh, I focused on it because I wanted to write a lesson of history after the 2016 election. I wanted to return readers and, in a sense, listeners to a time that was not so unlike ours and, in fact, I would argue made our time and maybe allow for the perspective that time uh, per- permits. And if you go back, this, this hard hat riot and the area encapsulates is really a microcosm, as you just alluded, Al, to the, uh, bri- to the seismic breakup between the FDR coalition, what we can call the old left, and what was called the new left of the time. And it also helps cement Richard Nixon's blue collar strategy, which, uh, I would argue, and I'm not alone in arguing this, laid the framework for Ronald Reagan's blue-collar strategy and what you know, Stan, who was the expert on, would you know, and many others termed Reagan Democrats. Well, the um, I have to tell you, the book I love this book, I, and but it's not just because it's um, such a you know powerful rendering and a, a cry, a capturing the you know the cry of working people um, to be to be heard and how that. Kind of exploded the uh, the party politics um, ever since, uh, but but it also led me to uh, kind of relive the period uh, because your introduction and almost everything that I've written about has been um, about my starting my work with Macomb County, and you know at the core of that was respecting working people, respecting white working people, um, and 
and you know, and, and why they were turning away from you know Democrats. But in fact, I was I'm, I'm actually a player, a very bit player, you know, in the story that we're talking about because my politics was being formed by these events, um, and they and they do connect to the in the end to Macomb. Uh, the I've always shared you know with James and I think James with me is that the choice whether you were for Robert Kennedy or Gene McCarthy, kind of in my view, a kind of a defining choice. Um, in terms of your politics and your view of America, um, I viewed the McCarthy world as you know college-educated white suburban college students, um, but had little to do you know with the kind of politics that I that I you know believed in, and I believe you know Rob, I I don't believe there's any progressive or democratic politics that doesn't have blacks you know as the central players' reason for being central to the co you know coalition. So I was for Robert, you know, Robert Kennedy, you know, because I, you know, I believe that I'm, for me, the civil rights, not Vietnam, you know, for me, it was the civil rights era, you know, that was most formative. Um, and I volunteered at night in Washington, D.C. at the NAACP. I was at the organizing tent uh, for the March on Washington. And so the civil rights period was, you know, it was critically important to me. And um, I ended up working for the Robert Kennedy campaign, developing models. And I'm actually want to go back and forth on this and how it squares, uh, you know, with uh, David uh, David's data, because we developed. Um, we're at a group of Harvard students working for Robert Kennedy. We created sense. We would in each primary, we would build in the census data. We would look at white Catholics, blacks, um, college educated in every county. And we'd also have Robert Kennedy's schedule, and we would project each primary and what would be what would be the effect uh, of his you know of appearing in a, in a county to affect the future primary. But our ba you know Robert Kennedy's base was white Catholics and blacks, um, and McCarthy obviously had a very you know very different you know coalition. And and, and take, take it just to interrupt for a second and take it to David's book, David. You really draw a great contrast um, with Robert Kennedy and his ability to have some appeal to those construction workers as well as African Americans, as Stan just said, versus John Lindsay, who was really you know whatever virtues he was the ultimate uh, elitist. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I argue, which I think is a little novel. Listen, I'm standing. This entire book is standing on the shoulders of decades of writers and scholars and reporters. So it's hard to say what's novel and what isn't. But I argue that John Lindsay's coalition was the beta test for the McGovern coalition, and the McGovern coalition is now really the Democratic coalition, to speak in overly simplistic terms. And I, I just want to jump off what Stan said because I, I've seen in my book as I'm drawing that contrast between RFK and McCarthy. And McCarthy, there's this amazing moment where. I mean, I can't even conceive a politician do, saying this today, but it's possible. We've had incidents like this in Democratic primaries where McCarthy told college students that RFK appealed uh, to the less intelligent and less educated people in America. And I don't. And then he goes on to say something. I don't mean to fault them for voting for him, but he urges them to keep that in mind. And Schlesinger, Arthur Schlesinger had this great retort that uh, McCarthy was declaring a revolution against the proletariat. And I have to say, I think that... Um, a lot of the new left inadvertently and, and sometimes quite advertently was committing, was really declaring a revolution against the proletariat. And that proletariat, those middle Americans, to use the term of the day, uh, knew it. And they saw themselves um, at the deepest level as just the antagonist 
of the progress that came with the new left and and um and that that gets to the politics that go below the net which i argue um i had many are really the most central politics of the making of the president let, let me just try one and then after which james way and stan i i you know we all worry about stereotypes so let's let's do a you know something definitional here i you remember alan Barron and james does you know he was a great political analyst who died 25 years ago he called me one time and he said hunt which city has voted democratic more than any city from uh, 1936 to 1984. I said, I know this lightest state, Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, fine. So which religion has voted the most democratic in those 28 years? Jews. Yes. Right. Which profession? I said, college professors. He said, no, labor union leaders. I said, fine. He said, so why is it the only Jewish labor union leader from Cleveland, Ohio, Jackie Presser, a Republican? And it kind of is a good, good warning about stereotypes. So tell us what the white working class is white working class voters how you define it and and the and the dangers of, of viewing them all as uh homogeneous completely so uh first of all and i'm sure stan can jump in on this uh i would say this one is we have to allow for the fact that we're using a shorthand as that is basically derives from polling and that is we do we do class by education uh college educated and not and we do that because education is the best shorthand, I think, for, and I think experts have decided for generations for class in American life. In, when, because I'm writing about 1970, I'm very careful with the data. I mean, I try to back up everything I can with data to the extent it exists. And most of that is in the notes because I don't want to bore, me, bore readers. But when, when, since I was writing about 1970, I, and I, I purposely call them blue-collar whites, first of all, and not necessarily white working class because you could be quite middle class and not have a college education at the time, or not have a four-year college degree. So I often double, you know, I'm looking at college versus non-college in 1970. I'm also looking at college versus uh, those with a four-year degree versus those with some college or, or really some post-high school education and no post and no high school education, and those who didn't graduate high school. High school. At the same time, I mean that that does correlate strongly with uh, separating the electorate by, and to this day, separating the electorate by income. So. Um, in short, white working class uh, does mean in my book or blue collar whites, whites certainly without a college degree and often whites with only modest post high school education at best. Uh, and, and I think today you find that's ever more correlates with income and all the uh, socioeconomic impacts that come with the, that lack of a college degree. Um, yes. First of all, I, I, I agree on, on using the definition of four-year college graduates and, and those with non-four-year degrees. Um, and it's, you know, I've gone back and forth on this, but whenever I measure it, you know, if you use income or other, or other measures, it's just, it's just it's so much more strongly correlated with behavior um, where people are appealing to working people. Um, it's not what people necessarily call themselves. Um, there's likely to call themselves middle class, you know, or working class, but, you know, middle class is um, it's probably de that's declining now over time, um, but the, your your own soft label for these folks was much more likely to be middle class. So when I did my first Macomb County research, it was uh, it was about middle class, and my first book it was middle class dreams because that's what they spoke about. So uh, Stan, Al Hunt, James Carville, all in their twenties when this happened. So was Donald Trump, and I, I'm asking to be a little bit of an armchair psychiatrist here. But when I read about this, his response to the current unrest seems to be just taking a page out of the hard hat riot. 
Does anybody have a reaction to that? I mean, I, I try to allude to that in the epilogue in what I call the afterward. And I would also say that, you know, what he, he uh, well, this isn't novel. Everyone's pointed out he's, he's constantly reaching to Nixonian politics in the late 60s and early 70s. But it's not America in the late 60s and early 70s. And what I think a lot of the articles on that comparison have missed is just how pernicious crime was in by late 60s America. And that alone, when we talk about the, quote, law and order issue or law and order politics, you know, that explains a lot of why Nixon had an appeal to a large public that, um, that uh, including many, many voters in 68 who did not vote for him. You know, but one of the remarkable things that's happened in the last 25 years is with some exceptions, but for the most part, there has been a dramatic decrease in urban crime. I mean, dramatic. Absolutely. Which is why Trump is flailing when he tries to uh, use law and order today, because uh, the potency of, I mean, there was this, I, I give all the data, I give all the anecdotes, but one anecdote that's amazing is this, ama this remarkable cover of Life magazine, which as you guys remember better than me, was, was really a mass appeal publication. And it has a, a woman staring out her, peering out her window behind bars. And it's all about how the article, entire article, the cover story is about how to get the best alarm system to protect yourself. And it's almost unfathomable to see an article like that today. Um, it was really a different America. And I mean, I've, many other things about the urban decay of that time are forgotten, especially the pollution. But the other thing is the reason I focus on New York City is, as, as I talk about in the book, and it's almost unfathomable to today's, uh, the, to those who've seen New York today, is that New York City was actually quite indicative of what you could call the middle the middle American squeeze. It was a blue collar city then. It was still a majority blue collar whites and diversity was happening fast and furiously and um, in, the, in the previous decades in New York City. But at the same time, it, it was still a working class town who was just starting to see this budding new age of uh, this new information economy. And it had been losing hundreds of thousands of jobs, especially for example, to longshoremen jobs at the time. And so the deindustrialization of America hits New York City before it hits America. And so in many ways, New York City was an omen of what would happen to America, to this, uh, to this blue collar white America, at least. And the, and the, part, of the, the part of the story with, uh, with David here is the kind of lack, lack of respect, the fair the heart of America, the kind of lack of respect, their invisibility, uh, particularly you know, as you look at college students and protesters and yuppies uh, that emerged in this rebellion, hard hat you know, rebellion. But this kind of lack of recognition, lack of respect. You know, Robert Kennedy, you know, it was it was it was part of his central identity and why it was plausible um, that he could have built, you know, the you know coalition. But if, but if you look at what I was saying in my first Macomb County study, it was listen to these voters, respect what they're saying. They're what they're saying. I actually started with a quote from Robert Kennedy, uh, you know, which you know, which, which said something about racial justice. And, and one of the people, you know, responded with, no wonder they killed him. Um, I argued it, he's racist for sure, but understand he has reasons, you know, for why he's reacting this way. And Democrats ought to be listening to these voters as well. Bill Clinton understood that. Um, but if you look at what happened to Hillary Clinton and why Donald Trump got elected, he, he respected working people. That was his central message in the Forgotten Americans. And the reason why he's going off 
with these ultra nationalist white nationalists now is that he's lost them. You know that they figured him out pretty quickly and pulled away from him. Yeah, let, let, we, we want to talk about uh, a lot about what's happening today. I just want to stick a little bit on on uh, what happened with the hard hat riot, David. You know, when I, your book is just extraordinary, and when you read it, you look at both sides and you try to put yourselves in their shoes. Both sides did atrocious things. I mean, the students occupying buildings, burning flags, running roughshod over people. And the hard hat workers, you know, just acting like thugs, beating up people, including women and the cops standing by. But both also thought that they were operating on a higher uh, moral level almost. The students were protesting against what really was an immoral war where Americans were dying 5,000 miles away for who know what, what cause. And the hard hat workers, I think you really bring home, they're saying, hey, we're the, we're the people who work. I mean, we work nine to five, we pay our taxes, we raise our kids. We were the ones that fought in wars, not you privileged sons of bankers and lawyers and everything. And the resentment was palpable. So you can really empathize with both sides in that that awful confrontation. And unfortunately, not enough people did, Um, except, and I would note that the greatest attribute of RFK is that he tried. Uh, and that's why I draw that contrast with RFK and other sort of the, the rising liberal uh, new left of, you know, McGovern, Lindsay and McCarthy. Uh, at this, you know, it's, it's almost hard to, first of all, I, ha- I tried to return readers to just how important the Vietnam War was in capturing the class strife, rocking America, but especially the Democratic Party, that I still think to this day, and I include Ken Burns' recent documentary, is tremendously under-discussed when we look back on the Vietnam War. And it, it came to symbolize, uh, really in, its, in the, the most, in a life or death way, that to blue-collar whites, they, were, they, they felt and they largely were ignored until 1969 by the mass media, and, then, and certainly became an object of derision for the new left. Uh, that they were, they felt they were making the sacrifice, and they were. Whether it was, whether it would be war, and and whether later it would be uh, taking on uh, certainly racially loaded issues like school busing, it was ultimately them who were going to who were going to experience busing. So and and so it, a mindset starts forming not only that they're forgotten and derided for their sacrifice, but that it's them who have to make further sacrifices. And it's not, it's no coincidence that the first time the term limousine liberal is used, it's used against John Lindsay in the 1969 mayoral race. And that, that, that branding, of Mario course. Mario Procaccino. Yes. And I focus on Mario Procaccino in the book for, you know, a page because it is amazing how much the elite New York media condescended him. And most, most atrociously in a New Yorker article that, I be, that if, if memory serves me right, refers to Italian-Americans as creatures at one point, and not ironically. Um, and, he, and it was a condescension that would never have been tolerated towards, in, in those circles at that time, towards African-Americans or, or Puerto Ricans, who were the largest Hispanic population in America and New York City at that time. And it was, it was acceptable. It was so acceptable that you could write it in the best publications of the time. So um, what I, you know, one thing to show is... I. You know, one thing you see then and you see now is is the psychic weight of that that separates these people from the work, blue collar whites or the white working class from the college educated left and sort of the left that would be the the 
who would start coastal culture and uh, basically govern coastal culture and the information economy. Uh, this left, uh, you know, they, this this weight, this cultural weight would would e- would even now would even come to weigh down Democrats who were trying to bridge this gap, and it was, and I think that's been true for fifty years, and it began back then. So, Stanley, let me go to you for just a second. I think the most profound gaffe in recent American politics was deplorables. I, I mean, that was that just reinforced everything in David's book. And what is really odd about it is that I remember distinctly in 92, Hillary was much more blue-collar oriented than Bill Clinton was. Yep. She was very skeptical of trade, of NAFTA. And something happened over there. But is my recollection right? Do you remember the same thing? Uh, we, sure, uh, we sure do. And the, um, I mean, first of all, you're, you're right about Hillary's history and in the internal debate, you know, uh, particularly on NAFTA. Where she was strongly opposed to it, if you never, you know, I think she hinted at it in one of the debates when she you know, ran for uh, uh, for president. Uh, but the, but she was very much part of a mindset at that point. And the uh, deplorables, I was the, I think the working class was invisible to the whole Obama, uh, Clinton administration. Uh, I was, uh, I was, you know, I. You, we, the both of us wrote with some passion uh, to what extent the Obama administration rescued the banks, um, but left working people, black and white, um, who closed on their homes and working people were invisible. We had a, we, the whole Democratic Party ran for a decade on let's build on the progress um, as working people got screwed, left behind, lost their homes. Again, this is white working class, but, it, but it's also what happened to Hispanics. And what happened to uh, you know Black Americans as well? Um, we were totally blind to what was happening to working America. Therefore, we didn't understand Trump because they were invisible. The deplorables captured um, this invisibility on the part of Democrats and elites. I would add to that just so people envision that invisibility, uh, because I think sometimes it's difficult for people to understand why are they invisible if many of the people analyzing and on TV are white. But to the but the blue collar whites by now are the are the demographic that are most foreign to those who work in our elite media. They they are they are in in cities from New York City to San Francisco to L.A. It is now largely a um, an affluent white, if not rich white, demographic. Poor minorities, or of course the wealthy class of minorities and blacks and. Um, and it is the people who have left cities in, le- in recent decades the most, though not exclusively, are these are, are the white working class. So they literally are the most f- the demographic that they run into the least in their daily lives. And I don't think that, and I do believe that played a significant role in 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 the last few decades and in the inattention to them. But I also think it ex- helps explain psychologically, if I can also play armchair psychologist, the, that what happened in Washington after the Great Recession. And that the um, if you look at the data on D.C., it never on political D.C., which I did, where the political class lives, they never had a recession. They literally never experienced a recession. They were most removed from it. And I think that that um, contributed to what I would what I argued then and what I still believe was a, a, an unfortunate um, an unfortunate hesitancy to emulate FDR and his monomanic focus on the economic crisis at hand. 
Well, yeah, I, I agree. But let me ask you this, because I've always been intrigued by this. I mean, things began in 1970, the, the, the transformation, as you write in your book, David. But I love to look at 1988 versus 2008. Just a couple little things. And Stan, you can explain. If you take Pennsylvania, a state that James knows well, in 1988, uh, those those shishi Chardonnay and Brie Philadelphia suburbs, Montgomery and Chester and Bucks, they went overwhelmingly for George Bush, 60 percent. Uh, Michael Dukakis was lucky to get 37, 38. In the western part of the state, Westmoreland and Washington, really, these are the working class, overwhelmingly white districts. They went 59, 60 percent for Dukakis. 20 years later, a total flip. I mean, Obama carried Montgomery and Delaware huge and 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 the Republicans carried the West. And I, you know, I think the same thing was probably true in uh, a number of other counties. Um, uh, why? What happened in those 20 years? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, the, Demo- look, the Democratic Party, you know, from every year has become increasingly the party of college educated voters. Uh, if you look at, you know, suburban, and, and you look at Michigan and look at Oakland County, you look at, at compared to Macomb, you're, every year Democrats did, you know, you know, better and better. It's part of why, you know, Rahm Emanuel was able to help lead the win back of the Congress because the suburbs just became more and more Democratic. You're, it was just in, inexorable that Democrats, you know, that the college-educated postgraduates were aligning with them. And that you know, and there were in, an increasing proportion of the country that had four-year college degree. But the big problem and the trap and why we got Donald Trump is that 65% of the country, 65% of registered voters, are non are voters without a four-year degree. You know, the right now, white, you know, college, non-college graduates are 46% of the electorate. So you, you've made this and it's because of the trends that moved toward college graduates. It's, it's, it's been all right, but you actually lost very dramatic elections because the white working class revolted. So why did Obama, we, we all can agree that race has been a factor in the, in the Republican right-wing resurgence, and sometimes it's exaggerated, but why did Obama, I think he carried McComb, you know, rather handsomely both times. Why? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, I think, irrefutably the Great Recession. Uh, you know, I was writing into the wind at that time in those, the, right. about, Bar- I mean, I, I really, I look, listen, Stan, you're the pollster of, you know, decades of experience, and I don't want to tread too far in your territory, but I broke out that exit polling every which way. I, I looked at all the data on weekly polling. I wrote a huge piece at the end of the 2008 campaign when I was at Politico on how I thought there was a uh, basically arguing that there was a, an absurd amount of hyperbole about what was what had changed. With listen, you have to set aside the immensely historic, important fact that it was the first African American to become president in a country with the original sin of slavery, and are probably the first African minority to become president in a pluralistic democracy. Frankly, so that's all exceedingly and historically important, and has gotten its due and should continue and will. Now put that aside for a second. Everything else, all the hyperbole after that election was largely BS. And I looked at all the data, and if you looked at when Barack Obama got his sustained his majority support, made his great inroads with whites, by the way, securing historic levels with white men not seen since Jimmy Carter, 
when that happened, it was after the the Lehman Brothers. It was it was as the Great Recession became something, and you know, a, a once or twice in a lifetime economic crisis, and that was why I always felt Barack Obama's opportunity was, you know, you da- as I as I wrote then, you dance and you know, quoting. An axiom: You dance with the issue that that brought you. You dance, and I felt that that sh- that should have been the focus, and I still feel that today. Daryl Royal said that the football coach in Texas. I was um, did a lot of research at that uh, prior, right, right prior um, to the election, right prior to the convention, uh, with with Macomb County voters and trying to understand whether they would uh, vote, you know, vote for Obama. And they had concluded at that point that he was, you know, he was going to. Govern for everyone. They didn't think it was a Jesse Jackson, you know. And so, but that the issue for them, the top issue for them was the, was was NAFTA and the uh, and the economic uh, crisis. Um, but they viewed NAFTA and trade as you know essential to that. Um, and they broke for him um, as a Democrat who would fight against the corporate uh, the way CEOs control corporations. And it was a fairly con- uh, conventional vote at that point because they didn't think he was. Somebody would it would have governed for blacks only. If you look at the re-election, I think the campaign had a huge impact with Romney as the, uh, the uh, nominee had a huge impact on them turning against him in the election. I should also give Barack Obama and his close advisors credit where credits due. They he, Barack Obama had positioned himself for reasons that Stan just spoke of to to be a uh, a vote against the status quo, and he had run a, a very smart. Um, an elegant campaign, and and that was that was that was one key reason he was able to, I mean, to be crass, benefit when the uh, the market crash occurred, benefit electorally, of course. So, let, let's talk about twenty twenty. And Stan, I, I think you are of the opinion that Biden will do considerably better in this demographic uh, in twenty twenty. Can you tell us a reason for your thinking and? where we are going forward and exactly what percent, you know, why, and why are these voters so central to the success uh, of the democratic party moving, moving forth as, as they, as they shrink in relative size to, to the total of the electorate, there's still a hugely significant part of it. So if you could talk about that a little bit and David, I'd like to hear your observations after stands. Yeah. Let me, let me go back to the definition of working class. Um, I was about to add this wrinkle, but a majority of the white workers are women. And if you look at the American economy where working people are, you know, it's not in manufacturing and production. It's across a whole range of particularly, you know, above all service uh, positions. Um, and if you look at what happened to Donald Trump, he, he had a revolt that was successful with both men and women. He won white working with women by 27 points in 2016. But, he, but that margin dropped by 13 points in 18. Um, and he's been running close to even with the women. Because the fact is, if you go across every demographic, black, Hispanic, you know, Hispanic uh, millennials, it's the women who are producing huge majorities against Trump. And that plays out in the, in the white working class. Um, and if you are breaking even, you know, close to breaking even, which is what we're showing now in polls with white workers as women or a majority. Um, you, there's just, just, oh, just a very different election than you had in 16, where the revolt was carried by both men and women. I mean, there's no doubt, I would just jump on that. There's no doubt 
Donald Trump is most vulnerable with women, whether college with let's talk about whites for a second, with college educated white women and a non-college educated. So in other words, whites, white women of all levels. I, you also see movement, as Stan could talk to though, with men. I am I would say right now, I looked at the data, I looked at recent polls, I looked at what breakouts there are. And, you know, it's clear that Trump appears about 10 points weaker with the white working class, but that's also how he looked in generally in the pre, pre-election polling of 2016. It appears that Biden's uh, doing a few points stronger. I would say my take with Biden is that he has a great deal of unrealized potential uh, with the white working class. And there's clearly immense movement away from Donald Trump with college-educated whites. And Biden could perform at historic levels with college-educated whites for, with, as a Democrat. And um, Trump is weaker with them. And, uh, you know, it, it obviously all this regards the fact that, you know, Trump has not minded the very voters that I, sh- you know, not paid attention to the very voters that made his election. And I think that it's he misunderstands why they backed him. And he's not the first president to do that, but he probably does it to a greater degree than any I can recall. If you look at 16, the, uh, the difference was not the scale of the margins. With white, uh, with white working class voters, they were huge in the polls, you know, prior to the 16 election. What the most of the polls missed was how big a proportion of the electorate, how much, the, how much motivation was driving up white working class registration and turnout that really shaped the, uh, shaped the election. The margins were very strong. It grew a little bit stronger at the end, but the very big margin with white working class men in particular, but also women was there for a long period in the That's a great point. And pollsters are compensating for that. That's a great point, Stan. Let, let, let's assume I got a text. It was Mike Donlan. And he said, James, uh, Vice President Biden is listening to your podcast. He wants to know what D- David and Stan thinks he should do going forward in this election. And get, don't, don't, he did, of course, I don't have such a text. Let's just assume I did. Give him some advice, guys. Give him some advice. Well, yeah, number one, yeah, number one, respect working people. You know the, the whole deplorables was a mindset that was was said because it was comfortable in fundraisers to say it. It wasn't just a you know a slip. You know it was it was an overall point of view. Joe Biden respects working people through his entire life. He you know he needs to show it, and and every evidence is he is. It's hard to do it when you're you know having to have virtual you know campaigns. So first and foremost, you respect working people. That you know that will be due to break you know in itself. And then he also needs to unite a, a, his Democratic Party. Um, you still have a lot of young people, millennials, Gen Z, you know, who have not warmed to, uh, to Biden. It's not, it's not a working class issue specifically, um, but it's part you know part of the broader need to consolidate uh, and engage Democrats. I agree with all that. Uh, I would also say that. Um... People have been advising Democrats to do this for a long time. What's different is Joe Biden is in a unique position because of his history. You know, where you sit is where you stand. And I think that, you know, a lot of politics does go back to the Greeks. And, you know, we sophism doesn't work. And people, you know, judge the principles and and person beneath the politics. And, and, you know, not always. And we can talk about Trump and, you know, as a caveat and why he's too generous to almost everything. But I would say that um, Biden is is 
particularly positioned because of his biography and because he's and because of his non-judgmental tone generally, and he's just not a judgmental guy, um, to make historic headway with the white working class and help really rebind RFK's dream, if I can go there for a second. I mean, this is such a this is a long-standing problem. It's profound in the you know I in my book focuses on this the era of the late sixties and early seventies for a reason because if you like. I always look at platforms, and if you look at the Democratic platform in 1972, um, as I point out in my book, they, the job section led with youth unemployment, and then it mentioned farmers, and then it I, amazingly talked about substantial unemployment among aerospace technicians, teachers, and other white-collar workers. But at the time, the majority of, their, of the Democratic base is blue-collar. So you just you see the, the, the disconnect between the, 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 the party elite forming then and the party elite now. And as you guys have talked about, you know, white working class voters are still m- more than four in 10 voters. And, uh, and their weight in, in the presidency and the making of the president, and even more so in, the, in, in who governs Congress, is immense. And the greatest thing Democrats can do to alleviate purple state Democrats with their presidential candidates burdened is for the left to take away some of the cultural baggage that they're constantly forced to shoulder. Well, I, I think, you know, Joe, well, going to Stan's point, Joe Biden has a tremendous advantage, Stan, I think, in the task that you lay out because it's who he is. It's natural. He doesn't have to work at doing that. And whatever her real beliefs were before, I, I, it's not just the deplorables that was, you know, one of the worst comments of all times. But I, I remember that opening Hillary Clinton video, the day she announced in 2015, and there were it was well done, and there were couples all over America. There was an elderly couple, and there was a younger couple, and there was a gay couple, and there was a couple of color. The one thing you never saw in that video were what really you would look at as working class couples. I don't think that would be Joe Biden's opening message, because I think, it's, as you say, it's who he is. I also think Biden, like RFK, I don't want to overstate the comparison, okay? <laughs> you, you it's <can>. dangerous. <laughs> RFK has achieved mythology, in, in, especially among political reporters. But Biden, like RFK, has some leeway with black voters in that he, you know, one reason RFK could talk about cl- common plight in 1968, which was not a fashionable point of view, by the way, in the, among the punditocracy. Um, <laughs> the reason he could talk about what was uh, the common plight was because he had credit on civil rights with black Americans. And, you know, that and so he could appear tough. He, he was seen as tolerant enough to appear tough on crime. And again, crime being a heavily racially loaded issue in the late 60s, much more so than even today. Um, but at the time, but I would say that what Biden's opportunity is similar in that he, if he has a chance uh, to, if he can ignore Twitter, the, 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 and if he can ignore uh, the naysayers because of his standing with African Americans, I think he has a, a real opportunity to talk about the common plight of African Americans, Hispanics, Asians, at least working class Asians, and of course the white working class. And I think that that. Very few Democrats have had that opportunity because it's it's because Biden, as you all have talked about, has the biography for it to be believable. Let me let me build on build on that because when you go, when you go back to Macomb County and and why you know Obama was winning, you had a working class that was really angry about CEOs that sold out their own companies, huge compensation, 
uh, outsourcing, you know, jobs abroad, supporting these trade agreements that were killing their own, com- uh, their own, you know, companies. And what is what is a common thread here is an anger about corporate America dominating, you know, politics. It's not, you know, it's not just the identity being blue collar. It's also what's happened to politics, where corporate big money dominates politics and means it doesn't politics doesn't work for working people. Um, and Donald Trump has displayed that on such a scale. Um, that he's you know, that he's broken the hold he had on working people in the midterm elections, but it could be even bigger in the presidential. I think a terrible mistake Obama made was listening to Tim Guyton and Eric Holder and not going after any of these bankers. I think that just drove people nuts. That they just walked there, you know, got away with it. I'm sure if you look back on it, they had to do it. Economics not a morality play, but. It's almost like they enjoyed doing it. And I think that's what people felt. And that cost us a lot. Well, they, they didn't have to do it, James. Not really, you know, you're, first of all, you're right. Uh, I think they, I'd give them a, a, you know, a 95 on how they rescued us from the abyss. But you're absolutely right. The one thing they didn't do, and you, know, you saw that when you talked to people uh, in places like Western Pennsylvania, Michigan, 16, nobody who was a big shot suffered. Nobody went to jail. No one was prosecuted. And I think to bring it up to when I read these stories like yesterday about all these special uh, fat cats that are getting federal monies now and no one's going to look at it. I think Trump, Stanley, could suffer the same problem uh, this time. This could be a real ripoff. Absolutely. I mean, TARP, uh, the bailout of the banks was perceived to be Obama's main economic policy. Um, And it it came with bonuses and no accountability and nobody going to jail at the same time nothing was done you know about mortgages and people uh you know uh you know bankruptcy uh there was so clear and it was such anger that defined the obama you know presidency and economic uh, program and so this is uh we're this is very alive and everything i've seen this is the biden campaign is actually indeed focusing on that his economic is an economic um addresses have had corruption, you know, center you know, as, a, as a centerpiece. And so there's like every reason to believe that they, you know, they see the opportunity. I mean, if I can say something a little controversial, jumping off what's being said, I actually, as important and deplorable, Hillary Clinton's deplorable comments were because it, it felt true because of the decades behind that comment to those who are the target of it. Um, I actually think Hillary Clinton gets a little too much blame compared to Barack Obama for the position the Democratic Party was in in 2016 to allow for a candidate to run and make historic inroads with the white working class. And I think it's the the, the reasons are that uh, Barack Obama had an historic opportunity for, you know, after the Great Recession. And he, while he, he saved and they, they deserve full credit for helping to stave off a, a prolonged crisis, um, they moved to healthcare and as important as healthcare is, and as important as it is to the economic stability of of, of middle and working class people, and, um, I, it was it was not a program focused on cost, which is often where they're hit most. And I think if you and it certainly, if, as I was writing that, if you looked at the data, to many lower and middle class whites, uh, they felt they were bailouts for the bigwigs and bailouts for those below them economically, but that they were all over again just you know, put to the side and told to fend for themselves. And then you would read these awful articles about 
um, blaming down in the elite media, like, oh, maybe it's testosterone for the guys who are losing their factory jobs, or maybe it's uh, they should just move. And, you know, it's as if it's so easy to uproot your life. And it, it was just a, I just think that there was a lot of missed opportunity there. And I don't think uh, recent historians have grappled with it fully. In real time, James Carville and I tried to persuade the White House um, that they are missing working people. There's a working class revolt you know, uh, ongoing that's going to shape the uh, midterms and down ballot. And, and Anna Greenberry and I you know, wrote an op-ed in New York Times after the 16th election. Is, is Barack Obama responsible for the Democratic loss? Uh, Stan, Macomb County, it votes today. How does it go? I'm not going to say without. Uh, I think Biden will do very well. Well, now, is that is that over 50 percent? It's pure based on hope. I've not been, I've not, uh, I've been on hold in terms of going back into Macomb, and I'll, uh, I'll go back soon to get my own my own reading. But look, there was a. If you look at what happened in the midterm, uh, the Republicans got slaughtered uh, in Macomb County, um, and if I'm looking at the statewide numbers right now for Biden that look close to the midterm numbers, you know, I I think you know Democrats um, should be encouraged. So let me just make a point about culture and how it permeated. The the, the deplorable comment, the the thing that people don't realize is she had said that six or seven times before, and nobody on the staff could say, uh, Secretary Clinton, there might be a better way to to reframe that. (laughs) Right? I mean, everybody. Yes. Thank you. The point is. It, 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 I know it, uh, you know, that was a mistake. Clearly, the Obama reaction to the financial, you know, to the bankers was, was, a, was a mistake, not going after him. But it, that's so much, so much little pushback for that in high end levels of democratic strategy. And somebody has got to like take somebody's goddamn consultants and throw them up against the wall. Like, what are you thinking about out there? You know, but why do you think you can do this? Absolutely. And that that's a key point. No one flagged that comment. And if there were other Democrats around her at the time, including Mr. Carville here uh, and, and Stan, uh, uh, I don't think uh, that comment would have made it past the first use. And it's, it's, it's a striking example for what it captures, that the elite of the party has not retained consultants, enough people around them that have c- clear bonds to, that, to this part of America. You know, I wrote a piece when the campaign started. I said, my advice is to put your campaign headquarters in Buffalo. And if, now you think it's a gimmick. You know, when, when we were, if, if you're in Brooklyn or you're in Georgetown, everybody that you see, that you go around, thinks like you did. And, and if in that whole Brooklyn mentality, and I, I went to that headquarters and it, it it, it, it just the, the culture of a campaign and the people around it just means something. And you know, if you had to go to a pizzeria and eat in, in Buffalo, that's a lot different than eating pizza in Brooklyn. I promise you, probably pizza might be better in Buffalo. Guys, let's 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 take this to the next four months, uh, just as a you know a final part here, because what I mean, I think what you both are saying is that Biden starts with a. A, a clear advantage. Stanley, you wrote the other day that I'm sorry, this is not 2016. His advantage is far greater than any edge Hillary might have had at this comparable time. 
what is there in if, if you lay awake at night is there anything you see that could go wrong i you know i'm awake at night, genuinely um on whether trump can be dislodged from the white house so i for me thinking through scenarios um on how tries how trump tries to hold on to the white house for me is my is my biggest worry you know what i what i what i wrote in that piece is we are we have to make sure that we just go for the biggest possible win, take advantage of every opportunity to get a maximum win. That makes it hard, maybe even impossible, for them to steal an election that's been lost so you know dramatically. So it's just a scale of win is, is, that is necessary. But but also though, if I look at risks, you know, if I look at Trump, if I look at Biden, obviously you have you know he constantly will say things that have slips. You know that will offend some groups, and, and it will come because he's. If we looked early in the, you know, in the primary process and and the debates, you know, it happened, you know, all the time. The first press conferences it happened all the time. But then I had Trump tweeting in support of white nationalists. You know, you know, do I think something that Biden's going to do is going to be the risk to him? How does that measure on that? The two big issues: managing the economy. Do I think the economy is going to, you know, going to still have double-digit unemployment, massive unemployment, you know, come November, or do I think the economy is going to be surging ahead, which is which is the higher probability? Do I think the country is going to have control of the pandemic and coronavirus, you know, or is it going to look like it's still not under control? You know, if I look at every one of those really big things, I think Trump in each case is more at risk. But for me, says. Just go for the biggest possible election. Make sure we don't have states that are close. Yeah. Um, I'll turn to James for a final thought, but let me ask you this. Just, you know, stretch your imagination uh, for a minute, David. And one of the uh, interesting figures you wrote about in that 1970 confrontation was George Daly, one of the construction uh, leaders. Uh, what do you think George Daly's granddaughter would be politically today? Uh, they're watching. I'm guessing they're watching. They the uh, last week I was on Tucker Carlson and and they wrote me. I got a text right away from his daughter that she saw me on Tucker. So uh, they're fans. They're, they're I would say that they watch Fox News and and they many would. I don't want to talk particularly about anyone and guess their politics. It's a very private thing. But it's clear that that people in her world are much more likely to uh, that part of Long Island, which is still blue collar. We are much more likely to support that blue collar white are much more likely to support Trump and much uh, than sort of anywhere in the five boroughs with the exception of Staten Island. And, um, and I would say that there's, there's, they are where, where um, Joe Biden's opportunity is that, you know, if, but I think that part of that opportunity and the ambition and the strategy that could, you know, win, put Democrats, especially in Congress, in a better position, is comes with some humility, and 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 that this is a fifty-year problem, and you know, I, 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 there's a reason I end the book on the seventy-two convention, seventy-two campaign, because that seventy-two convention, the delegates were diverse by sex and by race, but you know, nearly four in ten of the delegates had attended graduate school, which is like tenfold the share of graduate degrees at the time. The average wealth of the delegates was twice the typical Americans. There was just very little attention to what had been the central focus of attention of the Democratic Party for uh, during the FDR coalition. And I think that that 
foretold what is still a problem for the Democratic Party. And it, Joe Biden is in a unique position because of his story and because of generally who he is to help uh, ameliorate that, that longstanding historic weight that, and problem that albatross on the Democratic Party. I, I, so, David, give me a little bit of your biography. Tell people where you grew up and where you went to school. How does this guy come up with this book, I think one of the most perceptive books on politics of the century? Give, give me a little bit of who is David Paul Kim? Uh, I spent most of my youth in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in the suburbs of Milwaukee. Um, I would, the wild counties? In the, in the North Shore, but in the part of uh, – I grew, I was in Glendale, which at the time you would say was much more – Catholic, much more um, Reagan voter, parent, children of Reagan voters, and but right near Fox Point and Bayside, which are, uh, which were certainly the college educated and much more affluent uh, parts of, of what is the North Shore suburbs of of Milwaukee, and uh, and I think, and then I went to um, I went to a, a University of Wisconsin, but I didn't go to Madison. I went to Eau Claire just by accidents. They had the only world religions major, and I was interested in religion then, and they had a very good journalism program. So I went there and um, got a got financial support to go there. And I think that looking back, to be honest, I think that that was deeply formative in me realizing that even as I moved, spent years in Washington and, and New York City and she-she areas, I would say, of those places, um, to sort of really keep me tied to what I still you know, think is the F, the potential FDR coalition and, and really voters who have been disrespected and forgotten by both parties and the powers that be um, in America. So Stan, very quickly, tell us about where you grew up in your childhood and your parent. what was your socioeconomic status? Um, I, we, I grew up in Washington, D.C., but not in the Shishi areas. Uh, my father was a a self-taught engineer, but didn't have a did not have a college degree. But, uh, couldn't get a very strong job. Uh, we lived uh, for a number of years in all black neighborhoods uh, in D.C. Uh, when moved to a kind of work a kind of lower working class Jewish neighborhood, uh, no no member of my family had gone to college yet. Uh, the um, was part of the desegregation uh, and busing uh, in Washington D.C. Uh, after the Supreme Court decisions. Um, the um, um, went to Miami University in, in Ohio um, to college. Went to Harvard to, uh, to graduate uh, graduate school. Um, I said that formative for me uh, was, um, I believe, um, you know, living in an all black neighborhood, but also the civil rights movement was my first politics before the you know Vietnam War, um, and that you know came together when I when the you know the anti war candidates, and you then had to choose your politics when I was uh, at, you know, at Harvard. But I'd gone to Miami. Uh, to a state school, you know, before that. Right. Okay. I just want to, I think it's very important that our listeners or subscribers or whatever they are know something about the people who are just making these brilliant point after point after point. I'm turning back over to Al. I, I knew this was going to be a great show. It exceeded any expectation that I have. I don't I honestly say this, but with humility or, or something, I don't think you get more insight in American politics possible than you got in the last hour on this show. Over to you, Al. Well, I would concur totally, and I would urge all listeners, buy The Hard Hat Riot by David Paul Kuhn. It is really great. And all of us are waiting 
for Stanley Greenberg's return to Macomb County so he can tell us what's going to happen. And that, Stan, one thing, that, that, that county has doubled in size in 50 years, and the politics and the demographics aren't much different. So what you find out there will be of interest to us all. Albert, tell them about the Robert Drew movie, because we talked about Robert Kennedy a lot. But tell David and Stanley about that film. If you guys haven't seen Crisis, you really ought to. It is a unbelievable, and Stan, as a RFK uh, you know, person, you would it captures RFK. Uh, they got, these filmmakers got total access to Robert Kennedy and George Wallace during the Alabama uh, desegregation confrontation. Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door, even to the point of where they were in the Oval Office filming a session with Robert Kennedy, the president and top advisors. And it really, you you, you appreciate Robert Kennedy anew if you haven't seen it. Right. And, and D.A. Pennybacker was a young assistant director. And you can, it's a the war room, is, you can see the similarities in the cinema verite where it was shot. It, it's, it's called Crisis. Have, have you seen it, David? I have not. And I just wrote it down. So I'm going to. Yeah, Robert Drew. Robert Drew is the director. It, it, it's so riveting. You, you can't, it, it's like the Godfather. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, it sounds amazing. I, it's, I always love discovering new media. Well, you guys have given us so much. I'm glad we can give you a little bit uh, at the end. But it, as James said, this has been an absolutely fascinating show. Uh, I've learned a lot. James has learned a lot. And I know all of our listeners have. David and Stan, thank you so much. Great care. It was really, really my pleasure. Thank you. James, do we want to just get out and, on, on this incredible high, or do we have two or three minutes to add? But no, we can break out and talk about a few more things. Yeah, I, well, you know. You know, you had something on your mind. Yeah, one thing I, I, I was, you know, you get outraged by anything Trump does. I thought this insistence yesterday that college is open. I think that's different than schools open. We really want schools to try to open to the extent we can. Younger kids don't transmit this quite as much. It's going to be different, as Fauci said, in Casper, Wyoming, than it is going to be in New York City or Houston. But you want to do everything you can. I mean, these kids are young. Uh, the school lunch program is essential to a lot of the lower income kids. Colleges and universities are different. And for Trump to bully them to open and to also limit the, say, foreign students can't attend those schools unless they're taking a course in person. They can't do it online. Was just a, It just shows he doesn't give a goddamn about the health or the lives of these people. This is all for his political purposes. Are we shocked? Of course not. But it's just another example. I mean, I told LSU, I'm, I'm not, you know, be 76 in October. There's no way that I would go to teach in a classroom. Right, right. I mean, no way. And a lot of faculty are not going to go in at any of the schools. Yeah. You know, I mean, this thing is, is difficult going, really difficult going forward. Social distancing and 20-year-old college students uh, are mortal enemies. That's just not why you go to college, to socially distance. James, you had a thing about Mary, about Mary Trump's book that you think is going to be a big deal. Yeah. All right. This is the way people, it's, it's five takeaways from Mary Trump's book. And the big news is he got somebody to take his SAT because every journalist, commentator, everything, you know, always wants to get a, go in a good driving school. Or the financial stuff, he, he screwed his brother out of some money. And people will say rich people always do that. The one thing in there is that he mocked his daddy when his daddy had Alzheimer's. 
every person in the world, I mean, in, in every person has had experience or is going to have experience with this kind of thing, and they know it. And it's just to me, it's a prime example. If somebody takes away cheating as, as the SAT, as opposed to being the big takeaway, as opposed to his daddy inherited $600 million from, he turned on him. I mean, he turned on Roy Cohn when Roy Cohn got AIDS, right? You would say that's Trumpian Roy Cohn and it's a rich Manhattan lawyer, this Manhattan people. This, if, if this is brought out in the right way, this is going to cut, man. I mean, I know I think about my mother had it. Uh, everybody, I mean, it's just, just, it's part of life. And what kind of son of a bitch would mock his own daddy? God, man, it's just sickening. And, and again, I go back to the cultural problem with people involved in high-end politics. They just talk to each other. And that's that was a problem with Hillary's campaign. It's a problem with Obama's high-end and his administration. And I, I, they have any, you know, I'm sure they'll get people to say it's not true, but you know, it is. And that just, just the allegation is going to hurt him. Oh, I, I, that's what I, think. I, I'll be stunned. Of course it was true. Uh, and that's what he is. And, uh, there's more to come. Listen, this has been really a, we've had an hour, uh, that I could, we, you know, oh, we could have had four hours. It was just so good. Uh, and James, you stay, you're out in the Shenandoah still stay safe. Give Mary a hug. And I want to thank everyone for listening to 2020 Politics War Room and follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. And more and more people have been emailing us, so we hope you'll do that. PoliticsWarRoom at gmail.com. That's PoliticsWarRoom at gmail.com. Tell us where we're right occasionally and also where we're wrong. If you have a comment or question for us, we appreciate the feedback. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate the show. Be kind. And tell your friends who are excited to see some change in this election that we think we're going to be in the forefront of telling you about that. Tell family members or any friends uh, to tune in to Politics War Room. We'll talk to you next week. Stay safe and stay healthy. James, have a good weekend.
Total Wine & More is a wonderland to explore. Thousands of wines and spirits, unexpected pairings and great gifts, low prices and helpful guides. Make the holidays magical at Total Wine & More. Drink responsibly, be 21.